Welcome to Your Best Writing Life, an extension of the Blue Ridge Mountains Christian Writers Conference held in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. I'm your host, Linda Goldfarb. Each week, I bring you tips and strategies from experts in the writing and publishing industry to help you excel in your craft. I am so glad that you're listening in today. Today, we're talking about writing biographies and memoirs. Now, my industry expert, is Dr. Craig Von Busek. And Craig is an award-winning author, popular speaker. He holds an MA in journalism from Regent University. His book, I Am Cyrus, Harry S. Truman and the Rebirth of Israel, won the 2020 Salo Award for nonfiction and was a finalist for the Truman Award by the Truman Presidential Library. It is so great to have Craig back. We're going into part two of where we left off on the last time that we had him in where he discussed writing narrative nonfiction and historical fiction. It is great to have you back here, Craig. Well, thank you, Linda. It's great to be with you again. All right. We're going to dive right into our content for today, which is writing biographies and memoirs. And what is the difference between the two? Yes. Well, just as the name implies, memoir is your memories. And so it is the memories of either yourself or someone that you knew personally. And so uh, a memoir is kind of the story of my life or the story of my dad's life or my aunt's life or my mom's life or my wife's life, uh, anything along those lines. And so a memoir might be someone who is famous, but it also could just be an amazing story of a person who's just your regular Joe or Jane. Uh, whereas a biography is typically uh, written about a either famous person or a very important person. And um, obviously it's, it's written by another person as opposed to an autobiography, which is written about yourself. And some would say, well, what's the difference between an autobiography and a memoir? Not much, other than that typically an autobiography is a famous person, whereas a memoir can be famous, but is also often someone who's not known, but who has a very interesting story to tell. Now, if someone is not known and has lived just your basic <laughs> nine to five life, going home with the kids and, and watching TV at night, probably not much there to write a memoir. Um, so that's what would differentiate a memoir from maybe somebody's diary, so to speak. And okay. so those are the basic definitions. And I'm interested, really interested in this segment that you're doing strictly for me because of the memoir aspect of it. I actually have the story of my father's life that he wanted oh, wow. to leave for his family and his grandchildren and their children. And he wrote a lot of it in his latter years. And as a family, we sat down and asked him questions as well and wrote them down. So wow, this is going to be something. Old. Yes. And a lot of history. A yeah. lot of history. And so well, God, um, God bless him because, you know, 
there are a lot of people who don't want to do that. They don't want to be reminded of painful things in the past, or they don't want to, you know, some people, there's a real problem in Christian circles, and I'm going to be just straightforward with this. I run into it more than I feel comfortable with, and that is a false teaching about humility. Mm. And this teaching says that you can't talk about yourself and you can't promote anything that you're doing yourself. And it, it keeps artistic people and writers and actors and, you know, people who have a message, it keeps them in this false religious prison because they think it's sinful to talk about themselves. When in reality, we're not uh, the, the right way. Now, if you're just bragging about yourself and that kind of thing, of course, that's not a biblical stance. But if you're sharing a story in order to inform in order to warn people about the mistakes you've made, or in order to say, these are some of the successes I've had. And if you follow these principles, you can also have success both for yourself, your family, and for the kingdom of God. What is wrong with that? And yet there is this teaching out there. And I've, you know, you and I see each other at, at Christian writers conferences. I've actually had to speak to several people about this. I remember one young lady came up to me at the Florida Christian Writers Conference, uh, you know how they have the afterglow and you kind of go to the lobby and you have, you know, coffee and donuts or whatever. And we were sitting around and she said, yeah, you know, I, I'm a trained singer and I went to college, uh, but I don't do that anymore. And I'm just starting to kind of put my toe into the water of maybe writing articles or something. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. You're trained and you did it for a while, but now you're not singing even though you have uh, training and education in this? And she said, yeah, 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 that's it. I said, why? And she said, because I had people come to me and say that it was all about me and it wasn't uh, glorifying the Lord. And I said, do you think that was true? She said, no, I worked, worked very diligently to make it about the Lord and that it wouldn't be about me and to reflect him and to, to just basically share the good news. And I said, well, can I speak clearly and bluntly to you? And she said, yes, please. I said, what you're talking about is that you actually have stepped over into idolatry. And I said, the reason is that instead of listening to the Lord and doing what the Lord has told you to do and what the scriptures mm. tell us to do, you listen to other people and you made action. You took your talent and you hid it under a bushel. And you could see on her face when she was like, oh, my God, it was like truth. And suddenly her eyes were opened to realize that she was under a false teaching. Mm. And yes, we don't want to be bragging about ourselves. But if God has done something in our lives, if there's a story, an amazing story that can inspire, inform, educate, entertain, then why in the world would we hide that light under the bushel? You know, I remember back in the 1970s, there was a Christian rock band that I used to follow called Clockwise, and they had a song, and it was kind of a silly 1970s song, but the truth of it was intense and profound. And the song was called, We're Happy to Be the Moon. That sounds like a ridiculous song, doesn't it? But listen to these lyrics. We're happy to be the moon, happy to be the moon. We reflect the light in the middle of the night. We're happy to be the moon. Stop trying no. to be a star. You can't get very far. You can't even spar with the headlight of a car. 
So stop trying to be a star because we get our light from the sun. We know that he's the only one that can shine forth the light in the middle of the night. So we're happy to be the moon. And I shared that song with her. And I said, we look up at the moon and, and what, what do we think? You know, oh, it's, it's uh, you know, romantic. And, and isn't it amazing? And isn't it beautiful? But the reality is it is a cold, lifeless, dirty rock that's been beat up over millions of years. And it's hanging out there in freezing cold space and nothing can live on it. But what makes it the beautiful thing that we say, when the moon hits your eye, like a big pizza pie, that's more, right? What, what makes it that? It's the light of the sun reflecting off of it that makes it beautiful. It's ugly, dirty, beat up, and cold and lifeless. But when the sun reflects off of it, then it is beautiful. And that is what we need to do as writers. We need to say, yes, apart from the Lord, we are nothing. As the book of John says, that apart from him, we can do nothing. He is the vine. We are the branches. So we get our life from the vine. But we can tell the story of that life coming from the vine into the branches, which produce, produces the fruit. Or tell the story of how I used to be beat up, cold, lifeless, hard, dirty, and freezing out there. But then the sun shone on my life. And now he's turned that ugly thing into something beautiful. Mm. Okay, well, I'm going to start putting a little warning ahead of time that there may be tears that happen during <laughs> our show. And Craig, I had no idea you were going to go there. I actually had no idea that I was going to bring up even um, my father's writing. Yeah. But there's a listener that needed to hear exactly what you just said. Yeah. I think, and, I think I've found that there are a lot of listeners who, who need to hear that. A lot of Christians out there who have stories to tell and they've been hiding their light because of false teaching. And it's time to take the bushel basket off and shine the light on the side of the hill. Mm, mm. Take a stand folks. It is time to take that bushel off, get that basket off, release it, let it go, and let your story shine. That is, that is how we are to walk every single day, not encumbered Amen. by the words of an insignificant source. We need to go to the truth and know that he has given us the life that we have in order that our testimony will be able to reach lives that other people can't. Even that comparison of what the moon is, and it's only seen as glorious when it's reflecting the light of the sun, which is Amen. our life too. It's who others see in us that's reflected in what we do. That's beautiful. We could stop right now and we'd be good to go for the rest of the <laughs> rest of the time. But I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of pull us back in here for a moment. Okay. And thank you. Seriously, thank you, Craig. I I really am glad that we went there with this. This was this was important. This was important. Now we did talk about when you mentioned the differences between a biography, an autobiography, a memoir, and that normally with the memoir being a about someone who is, quote, 
you know, not real popular. Maybe it is just a short production like what I would do with my dad's stuff for our family. And But there's a lot of publishers who are hesitant to release memoirs today. Why is that the case? And is there a way to get around it? Or do we just go, oh, never mind, I'm just not going to approach a publisher with this? Uh, yeah, the I I can't really answer that question other than it has to, you know, follow the money. Uh, my my supposition is that it is uh, that memoirs don't sell like they used to. Now, mm-hmm. when you and I were younger, you know, there were a ton of memoirs. There was, you know, the the Davy Wilkerson, you know, crossing the switchblade, and and there was Johnny's book, and there was. The Hiding Place and all of these, there were tons mm-hmm. of memoirs. But then all of a sudden it, it kind of went out of vogue, which I see as a bit of a tragedy. I think that the, these stories have great power to them, and I hope that they will come back. But like I said earlier, just to clarify, there are memoirs that are written by great and well-known people. So yes. a lot of times presidents or a prime minister or a celebrity will write their memoirs. And um, and it's not too different, really, from autobiography. You know, it's, it's pretty much kind of the same thing, but they'll call it their memoirs. So, for example, in my book, Victor, The Final Battle of Ulysses S. Grant, the book is centered around Grant writing his personal memoirs. Now, for anybody who knows anything about uh, American historical literature, and about military memoirs, the personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant are considered some of the greatest military memoirs in human history. They have been, Mark Twain said that they were on par with Caesar's commentaries. And there have been many people who have said that they are, you know, absolute treasure of American literature. They still are bestsellers to this day. And when they came out, uh, I mentioned this in our last episode, but just a real quick thing. Grant had had an investment firm on Wall Street with his son called Grant and Ward. And he thought he was worth a million dollars in the 1880s, which is a lot of money. Even today, a million is a lot. But with inflation, it would be millions and millions. And overnight, the whole thing collapsed because Ferdinand Ward, their partner, was running a huge Ponzi scheme. So overnight, Grant went from a million dollars to only being uh, only having eighty dollars to his name, and only a few weeks later, he was diagnosed with incurable throat cancer. So now he has no money and he's dying, and he's very concerned about his wife Julia and how she was going to be able to survive after his death. Well, he had been approached by many different publishers including his uh, one of his very good friends, Mark Twain, who had his own publishing house at that time. Twain had started this publishing house to publish uh, Huckleberry Finn. That was the first book that he published of his own through this Charles Webster and Company was the name of the, of the company, which was his niece's husband, Charles Webster. Mm. And so, uh, but it was Mark Twain that ran the operation, basically. Charles Webster ran the day-to-day. And so Twain and many, many others had gone to Grant and asked him to write his memoirs. And Grant was raised a very strict Methodist by his mother. And he was taught, you don't brag about yourself. 
you don't put yourself out there and you you don't criticize others. Well, if anyone has ever read military memoirs, a lot of them brag about the general <laughs> and they criticize other people to the point of really, you know, going after them with the knives out. And so Grant said, you know what? I've got all this money from this investment firm. I don't need to write my memoirs. And so he had said no until he found out he was dying and he was penniless. And mm. then he said, you know what? I only have a little bit of time left. And this is something I can do to help my wife have her retirement years taken care of after I'm gone. And so he struck a deal with Mark Twain. And Twain was his publisher. And Grant sat down every day with a legal pad and a pencil and started writing his memoirs. And his son, Fred, and one of his former staff members, Adam Badeau, helped him with research and with editing. But it was Grant that wrote the entire book. He finished the book four days before he died. Later that wow. year, Twain released the vo first volume of the book. Both volumes in the end ended up making for Julia Grant a profit of $450,000. In today's money, that would be over $10 million. And wow. they totally restored the Grant family fortune. Julia was taken care of until her death. But also Grant's reputation was restored. Everybody was very impressed that he would do this for his wife and his family. But the other thing, and this is one of the important things for those who are interested in writing memoirs, and even biographies, and that is that in writing his memoirs, Grant took on the growing Jim Crow segregation, what was called the Lost Cause School of pro-Confederate thinkers, historians, and writers. And these people were saying, you know, they were so embarrassed about what happened with the Civil War and that they had, you know, that the planter class had taken the South in this war against the rest of the United States, and the South ended up devastated for the next 20, 25 years, hmm. that they changed the narrative. Even though during the entire Civil War, they said that the war was about slavery, these writers came out and said, oh, no, it wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights, or it was about tariffs. Well, it was only about states' rights because they wanted the right to keep their slaves, racial-based slavery. It was only about tariffs because they wanted to protect cotton, which was brought in and was the king. You know, they said cotton is king. It was the number right. one export by far in America. But the only way that they could have cotton is if they had slaves. And so the war was about slavery. And in his memoirs, especially in the very last chapter, Grant came out and said, we must look honestly and recognize that this war was about slavery. He said, while I respect those who fought against us and they were honorable and brave, but sadly they fought for one of the worst causes that was ever fought for in the history of man. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end, he said, however, in my illness, I have begun to see a reconciliation between what he called the sections, between the South and the North, and a coming together and he said, and so my hope is that this is the beginning of the fulfillment of the slogan that Grant ran on as president, which was, let us have peace. Mm. So with his writing this 
so much more was revealed, so much more was made known to those who read it. There is a reason why these need to still be out there. It's There's a reason why we still need to have this genre of writing made available to all readers. Yeah, and, and, in the answer, and in the second part of your question, to answer that, as far as what would I say to someone who has a great story, but maybe the person they're writing about is not as well known. Because right. publishers will put out memoirs or autobiographies of a celebrity, but they shy away from putting out the stories of people who are not known. And so one of the ways that people have kind of gotten around that is by creating it as a nonfiction teaching book mm. where you are teaching on the topic that is the central kind of takeaway of that person's life and experience. And okay. so you are pulling out the different teaching points that are in the story, but then you use the story of that person's life as your examples because every great nonfiction book has with it the supporting details of stories and testimony, expert testimony, and also research, you know, the latest and greatest research to back up the points that you're making in each of your chapters, and each of your chapters become pillars that uphold the structure of the takeaway and the central question of that book. And so that is one of the best ways to get around this problem of not being able to have a royalty publisher publish your memoir. The other thing is just to go out and self-publish it and then promote it and work your head off to get the word out there by any means possible. And Linda, you and I do that all the time. I'm doing it right now, talking to you. I'm, I'm talking about these subjects, but I'm also using examples from my latest books, Victor and Forward, these books about Ulysses S. Grant. And so these are the ways that I would say uh, someone who has a passion, someone who, someone who says, I've got a great story that needs to be told. Well, here's a way that it can get out there. Here's two ways. Right. That'll work, folks. All right. Let's go to the question of what is the difference between an academic and a narrative biography? Because we touched on biography a little bit. What can you tell us here? The, there is a saying in the world, in the academic world, in colleges and universities and think tanks and research groups that says publish or perish. And you've probably heard that before. before. And so uh, professors and researchers will publish their findings from their research. And sometimes they will take those findings and they'll turn them into books. The problem is that a lot of these people, while they are wonderful researchers, they're not the greatest writers. And so they end up putting out something that is very dry. It's usually a thousand pages long. And so they sell, you know, enough copies for some libraries and for their relatives and a couple of people who are just really big fans, but it just doesn't sell very well. And so there are exceptions to that. And there are some really great researchers who've done some really great books. You know, I think of the book Good to Great, for example, by Jim Collins, where, you know, he comes out of the academic world and he comes out of the world of research, 
but he took the research that he and his team did on what makes a company go from being a good company to a truly great company. And after a couple decades of doing this research, they ended up writing this book, which became a worldwide bestseller. So that is the exception to the rule. Typically, academic biographies tend to be much more dry. They go into all kinds of depth. A lot of times they have a million footnotes. Now, in my books, I don't put footnotes, but I have endnotes. So I still have the notes, and you can see the little numbers that are there within the text. But I think that footnotes distract from the narrative. And so I put all of my notes in one large document at the end of the book. You can still connect the dots, and you can still go to find uh, what the the source is that I'm quoting, but I don't want it to get in the way. And so academic biographies sometimes and most of the time are this way. They're very dry and they don't sell very well. Whereas a, a regular popular press narrative biography would be something that would be written by people like David McCullough or Peggy Noonan or Doris Kearns Goodwin or Ron Chernow. These are the greats. I just listed four of my absolute favorite authors, and I love <laughs> I love their work. But you'll go into their books, and they're written the way that I talked about. It is almost as though it's a novel, although it is not a true story. It is the story told in a professional manner rather than in a more, you know, familiar, familial or relational manner. So um, that is what differentiates the difference between a biography and narrative nonfiction. So a biography, is it still has, uh, you know, a, a bit of the, the voice of the writer in it, whether it is, um, you know, uh, usually it's a third person uh, style, um, but it doesn't go into the form of a novel like narrative nonfiction would. In narrative nonfiction, you literally plot your book in the same way that you would plot a fiction book. So you have the three-part structure, and you have the inciting incidents coming out of the first act and going into the doorway of no return of the second act. And then in the second act, you have all of your activity where they say, you know, you put your main character, and by the way, you have a protagonist and an antagonist in narrative nonfiction. You have to identify these things. And you put your protagonist up a tree, and then you throw rocks at him or her, and then you get them down out of the tree, is the old right. saying. And then you have your second uh, uh, inciting incident, and then your second doorway of no, re no, uh, no way return, and then you have your uh, building tension to the climax, and then your conclusion in the same way that you would write a fiction book, but it's all truth. And mm. so in a biography, you don't, you don't follow that kind of a structure. Uh, you just basically tell the story from beginning to end as it happened historically. And so that's how you differentiate between biography and narrative nonfiction. And with a biography, it's a chronological order. Exactly. Whereas in narrative nonfiction, 
You can have flashbacks, which right. I do. In, in uh, Nobody Knows, I have flashbacks. I have, you know, uh, the time sometimes isn't exact. In a biography, the time is exact and it's chronological, exactly like you said. Mm. Well, you have given us great information today, as always, and you had mentioned some of your favorite writers. So I'm going to ask you a question as we're kind of wrapping up this segment. If you could sit down with a favorite writer of all time, okay, so I'll give you a moment. I'm going to say this slowly so you can think about this <laughs> <laughs> because I know you know a lot or probably would be excited about this. But if you could sit down with a favorite writer of all time, who would it be and what would you discuss? Well, the one that comes to the forefront uh, is Mark Twain, Samuel hmm. Clemens. And um, even though he did not write a biography, he wrote novels and short stories. And he wrote almost all fiction other than his autobiography, which I own and which I actually used quite a bit of information from for both of these new books. Um, but Twain is, to me, um, you know, he created American literature, in my opinion. He was the one who set us free from the European past and said, okay, you're free to be Americans now. The funny thing is, is that Harry T. Burley and his generation helped along with Antonin Dvorak uh, set us free musically from Europe. And um, Twain did the same thing with literature. And so I'd love mm. to talk to him about that because Twain was a genius and everything he wrote and everything he said was calculated. And so I will read things in, in Twain and, you know, as a writer, I'm thinking, oh, I would love to know the seedbed that that grew out of because mm. so much of what Twain shares is from his own uh, experiences. And so, you know, Life on the Mississippi was almost uh, an autobiography, but he wrote it like a novel. So it was probably mostly, if we were to ask him, using today's examples and definitions like we've talked, to, talked about in these last two episodes, he would probably call Life on the Mississippi historical fiction and maybe even a bit of narrative nonfiction hmm. because it was taken right from his own example and his own experiences as a, a, a boatman and a pilot on the Mississippi River in his younger years. But there is one moment in Twain's entire work that stands out to me. And, and truly, every time I think about it, I get a sense of awe mm. and a sense of wonder at how beautiful and powerful it is. And it is the moment in Huckleberry Finn when he is, Huckleberry is confronted with the problem of helping Jim to find freedom because Huckleberry had all of his life been taught that if you help a slave, you're going to go to hell. If you help a slave to get out of slavery, you're going to go to hell. Hmm. That was the doctrine. And here he is, and his best friend who has saved him is now needing Huckleberry to help him get to freedom. 
And he sat there and he's talking out loud to himself. And he says, if I do this, then I've been taught that I'm going to go to hell. Should I do this? Should I do this? And he pauses and then he says, well, I guess I'm going to hell. <laughs> mm -hmm. Is that not one of the most powerful moments? So powerful. In literary history. And what happened is that Mark Twain himself had that moment because he grew up in Missouri, where which was a slave state. And he had to come to the point and he came to the point where he realized that slavery was evil and wrong. And I'm always saddened by people who misread Mark Twain mm. because they look at the truth of what he was describing in his current situation, and they say that somehow it's pro-slavery. It couldn't be more anti-slavery. What he was doing is he was showing the evils of what was going on to help preach the gospel of abolition and equal rights among the races. And yet people miss that. And I would love to spend a couple of days talking about exactly what I'm talking about right now with the Mark Twain and seeing how that all happened in his life and then how he decided to put it down on paper in so many of his books. Boy, you just, you really know who you want to talk to. I'd be spending a lot more time going, give me just a moment, Linda. Give me just a minute. <laughs> can, can we come back next week? Yes, yes, I'll have something. Just give me a moment here. <laughs> well, this is good. And what I really like, you do have that storyteller in you where you can extrapolate on just one thought and it just, and it just, manifests itself into this amazing detail and amazing content. And truly, I'm hearing just the the narrative of your books as we're discussing this, and I'm hearing your passion, and I'm hearing your desire for truth. Yes. And that really is what we're all to be about as writers, as Christian writers. To be you know, sharing Linda, truth. I, yeah, I totally agree. And I also, I think, hand in hand with that, I go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul says that we are called to be ministers of reconciliation because God has imparted to us or entrusted us, depending on the version that you read, the ministry of reconciliation because in Jesus, he was reconciling sinful men unto himself, sinful mankind. And so we have been entrusted by God with this ministry to help people lost in darkness be reconciled to Jesus. And that comes through truth, as you mentioned. It also comes through grace and love, and it comes through story. How did Jesus share these truly celestial ideas with the people of the first century church? Well, he did it through stories. How did Dickens speak truth to a corrupt society? He did it through stories. How does Spielberg touch our hearts time and time again in movies and, and make us think about Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan and so on and so forth? You know, now this year he's coming out with a remake of West Side Story and everyone that has seen it has said, 
It really confronts the whole issue of racism, the whole issue of class, the whole issue of gang warfare in a really fresh way. Well, how does he do that? By telling stories of truth, but telling it through grace and through love. And I think that's what we need to be about as Christian communicators. I can't think of a better way for us to end our segment here today based on that, except for one thing. And what is is it that you would like to leave (laughs) for our listeners today? Something that they can kind of sink their writing mind into. What would you like to share with them today? Well, I would love for them to have a PDF of a chapter of my new book that just recently was released called Forward, The Leadership Principles of Ulysses S. Grant. And so I'm going to give that to them for free. Anyone who wants it can download it. And I hope you enjoy it. And I hope it inspires you. I hope that the story of Ulysses S. Grant will inspire you to overcome the obstacles that come in your life to see God's truth shared and to see people reconciled to God. Mm. And I'll have all the information, of course, in the show notes. And Craig, it has just been a joy to have you on. Just thank you so much for taking precious time out of your day to spend here with our listeners on Your Best Writing Life. It This is something that we will probably play back again and again and listen to and absolutely download that chapter and look at the content, look at how it's set up, discover the way to write correctly in the genre that you have chosen. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it has been a joy and a pleasure, Linda, and it's always good talking to you, my friend. And I look forward to seeing you at the Blue Ridge Mountains Christian Writers Conference. Absolutely. I always look forward to seeing you. It's always a a pleasure and it's always just a joy. Well, the feeling is mutual, my friend. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, friends, for joining us. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review because truly what you have to say matters as much as what you have to write. This is Linda Goldfarb, and I look forward to being with you here next time on Your Best Writing Life.